Shanti. Good evening, everyone, and welcome once again to this really, really special moment where we can experience the Bhagavad Gita more deeply, more um, powerfully than we've ever done before, primarily as, as it relates to our own spiritual journey. And this is the inward journey of the soul seeking freedom. And this perspective given to us by Paramahansa Yogananda is the perspective of the yogi. It's the perspective of the meditator. Ved Vyas himself who wrote the Bhagavad Gita, I mean, he was not an he didn't worship God outwardly. These were all deep meditators, intuitively perceiving the entire Gita in a way both poetic, in a story that will survive millennia. This is the power of scripture. If I were to give you today deep philosophies and explain to you the intricacies of all the nadis and all the chakras, um, by tomorrow you would have forgotten, you know, half of it, perhaps all of it. But if I were to tell you a story of five brothers and how they went about it and the troubles they had and how they fought, that story will remain with you and you will hold with you, no matter how long it takes, the essence of the spiritual journey. And this is why scripture has been woven in this way for us, to protect it from misinterpretations over the years and to hold the essence of it that every individual can remember what it is that they're trying to convey, what experience are they trying to convey. Now, last week in our class, we just began this journey. We set the stage for the Gita on the battlefield. We understood that Dhritarashtra represented the blind mind, Sanjaya represented introspection, and how the introspection upon the command of the blind mind begins to relate to the blind mind what happened on the battlefield where the Kauravas and the Pandavas were raged ready for battle. And the Kauravas and the Pandavas represent the upward flow of energy and the downward flow of energy, the soul aspiring freedom affirming qualities within ourselves and the ego inspired downward pulling binding qualities within ourselves. The battle is endless, the battle is constant. However, there are certain guideposts, certain processes that each of us are going to experience one way or the other. And this has come only to the point where the aspirant is now ready to fight this war. As I mentioned before, for every person, this war is happening on a whole different level. For somebody who's not interested in this war, who's very happy giving in to his lower tendencies, very happy to be as materially minded, again, nothing is wrong with that. That's just where they are. It's perfectly natural. We've been there. So for them, the Mahabharata is following a completely different storyline. In their Mahabharata, the Kauravas and the Pandavas don't fight at all because the Kauravas have just won. The Pandavas are no, you know, very small presence and they're just living a very uh, obscure life. But in our Mahabharata, we're at the war. And so when we talked about the first few stanzas, I'm going to put this book down. This is, you know, an elaborate explanations that Swamiji gives upon which I am drawing our classes from. Narayani will hold on to the sacred book. 
and I'm just working out of this tiny little thing where we're only working with the sutras, working with the stanzas. So it's easier for us to kind of keep moving ahead. And so we've talked about the two battle sides, the two warriors on either side. And we talked about the tendencies that they represent. And in the last class, we had asked you, you know, now go back, introspect, look at your own tendencies, because they may not be the same as the warriors in the Gita. The, the tendencies Ved Vyas has, um, has shared with us are essentially the absolute highest. He's talking about intuitive perception, completely still mind, complete fiery self-control, which is Arjuna. Now, we may or may not have all of those. We have aspects of them. And the idea was, which tendencies have we strengthened? Which warriors within ourselves have we trained and prepared for this war? And this is where we are. And the last sansa we left it at was where uh, Duryodhan speaking to Drona. Drona represents habit. Duryodhan represents material desire, sense desire. Bhishma represents ego, just the idea of a separate identity from God, from the divine, from everything. And so Duryodhan telling Drona that our army is infinite, there are, we cannot be counted, their army is very few and can be easily counted. We talked about how the ways of enmeshing ourselves in Maya are numerous, the ways of freeing ourselves are fewer. And then finally Duryodhan tells Drona and his army, Whatever you do, we must protect Bhishma. That sense of a separate identity must be protected at all costs. Now, before I go ahead, I want to mention two or three characters because it will just be helpful to see, see the beautiful play that Ved Vyas has kind of interwoven. And these characters, they are mentioned in the, in the stanza before when Duryodhan is talking about his own warriors. He mentions one warrior in particular and this is Ashwatthama. Now, all of us who are somewhat aware of the Mahabharata, we know Ashwatthama is a very interesting character. And he has, um, he uh, features quite heavily in two main episodes. One is when Yudhishthir lies, Ashwatthama is Drona's son. When Yudhishthir lies and says Ashwatthama is dead, Drona, you know, kind of in despair of having lost his son, you know, lets go of his battle readiness and is killed in the process by Drishtya Dumna. You don't have to remember these names. We'll talk about them a little more deeply so we understand what's really going on. And of course, and then Ashwatthama has another interesting moment where after the war is over, after all the Kauravas have been annihilated, he comes into the camp of the Pandavas, not the Pandava brothers, but the Pandava army and their allies. And he essentially burns, <laughs> sets fire to the whole camp and everybody perishes. So let's look at these two uh, significant moments just for, just to understand again the introspective, deeply woven analogy into, uh, allegory, sorry, into the Bhagavad Gita. So Ashwatthama, Yogananda said, represents the power of attraction, our light. It is the magnetic power that draws us towards anything. Now, he's the son of 
Duryod of Drona. Drona represents habit. Now, while he is habit born, because what we do is through our attraction, we we indulge again and again, again and again, again and again, until finally it becomes so ingrained in us that we no longer need to feel attracted to it anymore. We're now enslaved by that original attraction. Now, as long as Drona is on the side of the core of us, as long as our habits are are for are uh, on the side of these material downward moving tendencies, our attraction naturally tends to go in that direction. So right now our attraction for the world is far, far greater than our attraction for freedom. You know, we want freedom. We say we want freedom. I want bliss and I want to experience what God feels like and I want to be completely liberated from ego identity. And then it's like, oh, but I want an ice cream first. <laughs> so the attraction we have for this world is far stronger. Now, Yudhishthir, he represents the fifth chakra, which the quality of the fifth chakra is perfect calmness. So when you get to Yudhishthir, it is, it is also the state of Pratyahar in Patanjali's Ashtanga Yoga. Pratyahar is when all your life force has completely interiorized. Then you achieve that perfect state of stillness, of calmness. So Yudhishthir, once he has achieved this perfect calm mind, now you know Yudhishthir always speaks the truth. So this is very hard for him. He's going to have to lie and say Ashwatthama is dead. Of course, you know, they kill an elephant named Ashwatthama. Isn't it just fabulous how they weave these stories? So Yudhishthir's not quite, you know, gung-ho about this plan. But in this moment, what this means is when your mind is perfectly calm and you affirm, now see the affirmations, and we do affirmations every day, they're not truth in the sense that we've already achieved them. They're expressions and aspirations of where we want to be. So when the mind is perfectly calm, only then can it say, all my attraction is dead. Now it's not necessarily true because we are attracted. The moment my, calm, my mind gets restless again, I'm back, I'm very attracted to this world, I want to really engage in it. But when the mind is calm, when I'm in the state of Yudhishthir, at that moment I can say, Attraction is dead. And the moment attraction is dead, habit, which is based on this attractive power, habit is built on this attractive power, suddenly says, has no power over you. And so in a calm mind, we are able to overcome habits by withdrawing through pratyahar our attractive impulse into this world. So that's step one. And then who kills Dronacharya? Drishtadumna. Drishtadumna represents Drishti, the inner vision, the inner light. Yogananda said represents our intuitive perception, our intuitive understanding of the world. And that is the only way we will overcome the very, very powerful draw of habit. Habit is extremely powerful. Don't ever underestimate it. Powerful both ways. It helps also our good side. It helps us definitely our bad side. But now the war has begun and it's, it's certainly on the core of our side. But when intuition starts to develop, only after the mind is perfectly calm. When the mind goes still, and that's why as devotees we're really talking about meditation. 
we're not just talking about oh isn't it lovely to worship krishna and he's the best and he's the brightest and he will save us no i have to i have to experience and achieve certain of these states to even recognize krishna for who he is to even commune with krishna the way arjuna is communing with krishna krishna is not talking to you and i like this arjuna has achieved a certain state of perfect attunement before krishna even reveals the gita to him so let us get to that state as well so then our intuition begins and wins over habit now we come back to ashwatthama because he's not truly dead in fact he is immortal and he's the only kaurava who doesn't die at the end and i'm skipping ahead just again to give us the sense of the allegorical nature of the mahabharat itself is that ashwatthama the ability the attraction for the world even though our uh, tendencies downward pulling worldly ego affirming tendencies are all annihilated which means they have been now offered up into the positive side the desire the attraction for god still exists and in that attraction even the positive qualities finally get consumed because when you finally achieve the state of union with god all duality collapses onto itself which means neither the pandavas exist nor the kauravas exist both of them have to be completely absorbed into the one unified experience in god there is no good or bad there is no up or down there is no duality but in order to achieve that state first we have to contend with the downward pulling forces and then our upward pulling forces naturally joyfully offer themselves up and all that remains is ashwatthama which means the attraction the magnetic pull towards bliss so these are key characters you see there these are noble characters don't take the kauravas to be bad people they are princes they are warriors they are noblemen they are people of great power they only need to be redirected and we'll go deeper into what that redirection means so i just wanted to mention these few key characters as you yourself perhaps explore the mahabharat on your own you'll start to enjoy these subtleties so now here we are listening to all of this bhishma now bhishma comes in and we're on the 12th stanza of our first chapter grandsire bhishma then glorious and powerful among the kurus anxious to encourage duryodhan you see duryodhan even though he's like we have all these warriors and they are infinite and look at the pandavas they have hardly anybody but he's not really certain he sees the power he sees what he has to work with and he's a little anxious so bhishma it is the ego's job here anxious to encourage duryodhan blows his conch with a mighty blast now again it's just beautiful allegories will come in here yogananda said the conch of uh, bhishma is the breath for ego the breath is his strongest you can say ally it is his sound that his affirmation i still exist and when we start to meditate our first obstacle is the breath as long as the breath is flowing we're cons- we're going to stay restless now once bhishma blows his conch which is our breath 
It is followed immediately by a great tumult as conches, kettle drums, horns sound the mighty roar of support. So then all the Kauravas suddenly pick up their conches, pick up their drums, pick up their horns, pick up their trumpets. So as long as there is breath, as long as the dual movement of the inhalation and exhalation exists, there will always be restlessness and there will always be a certain amount of ego awareness and what ego awareness brings, which is desires, attachments, thoughts, likes, dislikes, downward pulling energy. Lots now, of noise. Lots of noise, essentially. And we know about this noise all too well. If you are a serious meditator or if you've even attempted to meditate, and this is why Yogananda, the first technique he gives us on the path to Kriya Yoga is Hongso, which is this, which is the technique for breathlessness. Step one, still the breath as much as you can, because that is the strongest um, <laughs> sound of the ego. And as long as that sound plays, the other sounds, the other noise, the other tendencies hold sway. They still have power. So if you have meditated and if you perhaps like a technique similar to Hong So, I'm sure there are many out there, when you get to the point where your breath gets so still, suddenly there's this fear, instantly the ego recognizing that it's losing its grip on your consciousness, immediately you'll start breathing. You'll be like, wait a minute, what's happening to my breath? And you take a deep breath. So Yogananda said a devotee, once he starts withdrawing into that state of breathlessness, immediately the first thing ego will do to re-kind of um, impose its, its hold on you is to initiate the breath once again. And all of us have experienced a state similar to that. So this gives us both the understanding that, okay, the breath is an important aspect to be overcome in our meditation. And it is through the breath, the more restless your breath, the more outward your awareness, the more still your breath, the more interiorized your awareness. This is one of those thumb rules that is very important to remember. That is why often pranayama is such an important suggestion about if you get angry, start controlling the breath, start watching the breath, start letting the breath settle. Because through the breath, you can begin to interiorize and give more energy, both either to the Kauravas or to the Pandavas. Now, having the Kauravas all PPPPP getting all excited because the breath has reaffirmed the ego identity. Now, of course, Krishna and Arjuna stationed in their magnificent chariot drawn by white horses, the five horses representing the five senses over which Krishna has complete control. They blow on their own celestial conscious. And then it continues and says, Krishna blows, you know, and then they go on all the names of the conscious. Believe me, if I could pronounce them really well, I would. But they're all, you know, they tie, they'll, I get tongue tied trying to get Panchajay and Dhananjay and Vikrodhara, you know. But Yogananda says each of these because then he says, Krishna blows his conch, Arjuna blows his conch, Bhima blows his conch, then Yudhishthir blows his conch, then Sahadeva and Nakula blow their conch. And so Yogananda said, these are the inner sounds of the chakras. And again, those of us practicing Kriya, practicing the Om technique, in that Om technique, we hear these sounds. But even without the Om technique, once you go deep into meditation, these sounds naturally manifest. These sounds, Yogananda lists them as 
starting from the muladhar all the way to the point between the eyebrows you've got nakul the sound of the motor you've got sahadev the sound of the flute you've got arjuna the sound of a stringed instrument you've got bhima the sound of a gong or a bell you've got yudhishthir the sound of rushing waters or wind like rustling in the leaves and then you've got krishna this is the sound of om so first you have krishna blowing his conch now again two interesting realities both for the experienced meditator and for the first a novice meditator for the experienced meditator he should immediately start to try to listen and perceive the sounds especially of om but of all the chakras whatever manifests for him for the inexperienced meditator it says that if we begin to just chant om it will automatically start aligning us back in it will start helping us withdraw and interiorize this life force ourselves so om can be used both ways if you're able to perceive it in the stillness of your meditation then try to perceive it more deeply and if you're not at that stage yet mentally begin to do the japa of om so if your mind is restless if the breath has asserted itself on you it'll start to calm you down immediately so again you can just see this inward journey that has begun and the gita the, the first chapter in many ways is the most important chapter and it's one that most people just skip because you want to get to okay let's get to where krishna starts talking but this is where vedvyas has set the stage so he's helps especially he who is looking for the yogic way of understanding he takes the first chapter and begins to set his own stage before he is even ready to receive what krishna has to give him so in that way sanjaya who is still the one uh, relating and commenting on the gita to dhritarashtra he starts to say these are the sounds that begin to come and he mentions a few other warriors who also blow their conches also uh, you know make their sounds and again yogananda saying it's all the inner sounds that come as a result of the stage of pratyahar as the life force begins to interiorize now that that mighty tumult now this is the sounds of the inner sounds of the chakras reverberating through heaven and earth and yogananda said this is both physical sounds and astral sounds that the devotee hears within himself heaven and earth represent the physical and the astral pierced the hearts of dhritarashtra's sons the kauravas and shakes their faith so now this is the moment where as the devotee educate in your meditation this process is constantly it's a, it's really a battle there are moments where still there are moments the mind gets restless then we seize control i mean you know hongsa right okay i'm watching the breath i'm watching the breath oh, okay what do i have to do tomorrow and yeah what do i really want to eat after this when i'm oh i'm watching the breath i'm watching so this game this war is constantly happening so sometimes when we're with it dhritarashtra's sons the kauravas are the ones shaking out of fear and sometimes when we let kauravas take over when we let duryodhan take over when we let bhishma take over then of course the pandavas are nowhere to be seen and so right now fortunately as we go in it is the kauravas who are a little afraid because the pandavas have blown the chakras have revealed their sounds to us in deep meditation now beholding the clan of dhritarashtra 
Arjuna. Now this is the fun part. Arjuna, whose flag bore the monkey emblem, took up his bow and addressed Krishna. Now again, key things here. First, the monkey emblem on Arjuna's chariot, Yogananda said, it represents, the monkey represents restlessness. Um, so, as we call it, the monkey mind. So, Arjuna, this represents that Arjuna, because he is fiery self-control, has complete control over the restless mind. And this is where the devotee has to achieve, has to get to the state before he can address Krishna. You see, these are the key moments. It's like, why would Sanjaya be telling Dhritarashtra that Arjuna has the flag with the monkey on it? I mean, it's just, these are the hidden kind of messages that Vedvyasa has left us. Ah, until I have not overcome the restlessness of my mind, until I don't have fiery self-control over restlessness, not just of the mind, of the body as well, because here we sit to meditate, then we move and then we move and then we adjust and then we have to do this. I mean, how many of us can hold that? So two key things. He bears the flag of the monkey, has perfect control over the restless mind. Secondly, what does he do? He took up his bow before he addressed Arjuna. Now, Yogananda said the bow represents the spine. Narayani, do you think you could just kind of go sideways for a moment? Yeah, there. So now we all know the bow has two aspects. It has the string, which is your spine. And therefore, in all these epics, whether Ramayana or Mahabharata, the most difficult thing and how they win the woman and how they ensure that they are the greatest warriors is if they are able to string the bow which sounds should be easy enough to do, but is not very easy. So the bow represents your spine. The front of your chest represents the front part of the bow and the string of the bow is your sp spine. The other place, thanks Vidhi. The other place Yogananda said that the bow is represented is right here at the eyebrows. Again, these two arches of your eyebrows represents the top of the bow. And the point between the eyebrows is where the arrow is placed. We know the story of Arjuna where he had to shoot the eye of the bird. And when uh, Drona asking all his other students, what do you see? What do you see? What do you see? Everyone says, I see the bird. I see the trees. I see the sun. I see the this. I see the that. And only Arjuna was saying, I see only the eye of the bird. So it has the devotee, the spiritual aspirant, has to achieve these two states to a certain extent. Now, it's not saying here you have to perfect yourself before Krishna will reveal himself to you. Of course not. Krishna is with you always in the worst of those situations of your life. He is with you and he will be accessible to you. But if you are looking for freedom, where you really tune into Krishna, you have to have a straight spine in your meditation. We cannot be sitting like this to meditate. We have to have picked up our bow. Only then is the bow strung and ready for battle. And we have perfect concentration at this bow. And to a certain degree, we have overcome the restlessness of the body and the mind. Now the devotee is ready to address Krishna. Now let's see what the devotee says, however, because this isn't this is now the slightly discouraging part that comes in. Arjuna said, O changeless Krishna, 
I ask you to guide my chariot between the two armies, that I may see them opposed and observe the warriors with whom I am to contend. Let me study who willingly support Dhritarashtra's son. Now this is the study that we've already talked about, but again, here's the, the deep, allegorical, cryptic, esoteric reality. Arjuna asks Krishna, Arjuna the devotee, having achieved a certain amount of self-control and stillness, talks to his guiding principle, the highest manifestation of the soul of God within him, his guru, Krishna, and says, take me to the middle of the two armies. Now, again, this is a very uh, kind of funny moment. Here you are, ready to battle. I mean, think about this. All warriors are ready. Just a battle is about to start. The war is about to begin. And the key, <laughs> you know, warrior, the key prince suddenly says, no, I want to go in the right in the middle of both the armies. I mean, he's going to get killed. Who wants to go into the center of both the armies? If he really wanted to see both the armies, he could have said, Krishna, let's go up on a little high platform. I want to survey both the armies and see what's going on. No, this again represents the inner battle. And the Pandavas and the Kauravas represent for us these two flows of energy in the Nadis, Ida and Pingala. Now, Ida and Pingala, again, is the duality of the world. In the in Ida, on the left side, energy rises up. And on the Pingala, on the right side, energy descends down. And this is the process that keeps us essentially reactive to this world. Where for every up, there's a down. For everything that's good, there's something bad. There's everything I like, there's something I dislike. Now where Arjuna wants to go is into the Shushumna, which is at the center of the Ida and the Pingla. The Ida and the Pingla surround and move around the Shushumna. And the devotee in meditation, if he has not to a certain degree interiorized his life force enough to enter the Shushumna, he's not yet achieved the meditative state. So for all of us who are meditating, we're trying to meditate. We're trying to achieve a state of meditation. But it is only when the life force withdraws into the Shushumna, where it goes beyond the Ida and the Pingala, that is when our, a true meditation begins. And now Arjuna is asking his inner guide, asking his godhood to say, all right, let's go deeper. I want to see. I want to see clearly. I want to separate myself completely from both these forces that I am influenced by. And I want to see who is who and what is what. So this is now again, this is where, see the journey. Mind introspects, begins, the breath is strong, the Pandavas step in, concentration comes in, the bow is uplifted, and now we're entering into the Shushumna through our deep meditation. Now Sanjaya, this is still Sanjaya telling Dhritarashtra, O descendant of Bharat, Dhritarashtra, on hearing these words of Arjuna's, Krishna drove the best of chariots, their chariots, to the point between the two armies into the Shushumna. There, before Bhishma, Drona, and the great horde of the opposing chiefs, he declared, Behold, Arjuna, 
this mighty gathering of the Kurus. Arjuna then beheld before him his own relatives, grandfathers, fathers, fathers-in-laws, maternal uncles, brothers, cousins, sons, grandsons, friends and teachers. Observing this and observing his own kith and kin before him, the son of Kunti, Arjuna, was filled with pity and spoke sorrowfully. O Krishna, seeing these my own relatives, gathered together ready to fight us, my strength fails me. My limbs quiver, my mouth becomes parched, my whole body trembles, my hair stands on end. The sacred bow, Gandiva, slips from my grasp and my skin is on fire. I cannot remain upright and my mind loses all focus. Now this is where the battle gets really hard. In the beginning of our spiritual journey, you know, our meditations are, oh yeah, this is lovely, this is really nice, oh, I feel good, I feel peaceful, I feel calm, oh, little things are changing around me, you know, it's just like, yes, it's this excitement, I'm so, it's, it's this romantic idea. But now we have to get serious. Now, there's real battle to be done. This is dynamic. This isn't, I sat to meditate and it felt really nice. And yeah, now, you know, I'm able to uh, deal more easily with this little problem. I'm even getting more clarity in my decision making at work. All wonderful things. <laughs> but here is where the dynamic will is introduced. But at this point, the devotee is not sure. Now, the devotee looks around himself and says, wait a minute, these habits, these tendencies, these likes and dislikes that I'm fighting, these are my own. <laughs> I mean, I am these. See, when you're talking about kith and kin, when we're talking about family here, what is our family? Our inherited influences. Your grandfather, your father, your brother, your sister, these are you. Your desire to be lazy, this is you. This is your brother, your desire to eat uh, <laughs> as much chocolate as you want, your inability to control certain of your impulses, your deep desire to earn a lot of money and be extremely comfortable. I mean, all these things are you, they're your brothers, they're your sisters, they're your grandfathers. Now here, later on, Krishna, uh, Arjuna goes on to talk about grandfather, father, and brother and sister and Yogananda really breaks it down. First he talks about teachers. Teachers are those habits we have acquired, like Drona is our teacher, that we have worked on, we have learned from, we've learned these habits. Our fathers are those tendencies that we've inherited, that we've brought into us. Grandfathers are past life tendencies that are still continuing through us. So you see our family that we're fighting with in this is not as people think that, oh wow, look at Arjuna, he wants peace and Krishna is asking him to fight. No, Arjuna doesn't want peace. Arjuna wants to give up. And we want to give up because what is it? I want God and I want bliss, but I also want to be lazy sometimes. You know, I want to have perfect health, but I also want to keep indulging in my little uh, knickknacks here and there. And again, very important, 
this is where I wanted to end and I would like Narayani to sum up some of this stuff for us so we remember the points we've touched is nothing's wrong with any of this. I don't want you to feel that oh you have to give up all your great pleasures of life because then and then only then God will come to you. No. However, if you want to be free, bhai, you have to be free. You can't want freedom and want bondage at the same time. You can't aspire with this hand and say, Krishna, lift me up. But here you're holding to Duryodhan's hand and saying, but all my desires, I want to bring them with me. This is what we want. We want God, but we don't want to let go of our lower natures. And this is what Arjuna is now experiencing. He's experienced the, the initial joys of the spiritual path, but now it gets serious. Now you have to really let go of these things. Now you have to kill and annihilate these vrittis, these karmas, these tendencies within you. And the truth is, not all of us are ready for that battle. And so, when Arjuna says, my body trembles, what happens? Restlessness starts taking over even in our meditation. The bow slips from my hand, what happens? We, the, the spine droops and says, oh, I don't know if I really want to do this. Now those experiences that I was receiving before aren't coming to me. Now that stillness is not coming as easily. Now the light is not manifesting as much as I want it to. Well, because now you have to earn it. Now you have to fight for it. And this is where we all are. Many of us were at the absolute beginning of the battle where we are willing and ready to fight. And yeah, we'll keep going back and forth. But Arjuna is at this stage too. And from this despondency of Arjuna, which is very heartening because we go through this as well. Now comes Krishna's advice. And in the next class, we'll hopefully move into what is it that Krishna then says to Arjuna. In the meantime, Narayani, if you have certain things that you can help sum up for people. I think sometimes I have been a past warrior of sorts because I feel so excited every time I hear I hear about the Bhagavad Gita. It just to me is like we need to learn truly how to become warriors, not just, you know, nice devotees or nice saints but really warriors we are going to um, require a lot of um, qualities to really defeat the evil and those downward pulling downward pulling tendencies there are three points though that i really enjoyed today and one of them is when surja was talking about the power of attraction and i would like for all of us this week to focus in three main points because you know as we know the underneath current of the bhagavad gita is all about introspection to see and get to know ourselves and our tendencies and what are we working with and what should be our priorities so we can really defeat those people and those tendencies that need to be defeated. So I will say this week, try to introspect a little bit more in those things that you are attracted to. Ask yourself, you know, what do I feel is my greatest weakness or my greatest pull towards what perhaps if is the desire to be recognized or perhaps is the desire to be loved or acknowledged 
or perhaps it's the desire to, you know, success in everything I do, or perhaps is I don't know, temptation of any kind, of perhaps I'm attracted a lot in indulging in, indulging in food, whatever that might be. I think it will be important for us to identify those, you know, strings and pulls that are constantly bringing us outwardly and to be caught up in maya number one identify those secondly train ourselves to calm the mind and to calm the body if you are not a meditator make sure throughout the day you have little stops throughout the day don't keep yourself busy 24 hours even if you don't meditate every two, three hours, put an alarm, stop for 10 minutes, then go to the next activity every two, three hours, stop. So you will be training yourself to stop um, your physical energy to continue to be entangled outwardly. If you are a meditator, make an emphasis to really calm and interiorize your mind as much as you can perhaps it's practicing more pranayam or perhaps it's deepening your hong so especially those moments of pause between the inhalation and ex exhalation and keep extending those moments so we can really touch that place of stillness not only from the body but uh, of the mind and obviously try to move physically you know as less as you can and the third thing that I really enjoyed, and even though this uh, may look to you a very basic thing, a very, very simple thing, your spine, not only in meditation, but again, throughout the day. I mean, the Bhagavad Gita needs to be practical in our daily lives. We need to start, you know, becoming um, Arjunas, all of us. And spine should be always straight so keep double checking you know keep reminding yourself throughout the day while cooking while cleaning while watching tv where is my spine i'm sitting straight or i'm allowing my bow to okay i'm just going to relax because it's going to take a lot of energy if we want to keep winning our daily battles so those three things to keep in mind Start identifying and getting to know yourself what I'm attracted to so we can work with those tendencies. Secondly, calm your body and your mind through having little moments of pauses physically and also in your meditation, your pauses between the hong and so. And thirdly, your spine to make sure it's always straight.